Well, I invite you to turn to Hebrews uh, chapter 13 this morning. And uh, this, this God who is great that we just proclaimed, we're learning a lot about him through our study of Hebrews. We've got um, one chapter left to go, so this is Hebrews part 25 this morning. And uh, that, that means there's uh, the nine verses we're going to take on this morning, and, the, and then next week ends it this, this time in Hebrews. We've been learning about how Jesus is better. Last week, as Michael said, we contrasted um, Mount Zion with, with uh, Mount Sinai and discovered that Mount Zion is much better because it represents Jesus. So today, we come into 13, understanding there's this period of time in which he's calling us to some self-evaluation. We get to grade ourselves this morning. Looking at what he's written over the course of these last 12 chapters, he begins asking some pretty hard questions, like, where am I at on some of these crucial issues? And, And there will be a test at the end of today, okay? Just to prepare you. No, not really. But there's some, there's some questions in your notes. If you look over on the right-hand side of your notes that are in your bulletin this morning, you're going to see some of the really basic questions that are going to come out of this. And you're going to think this guy, man, he's just so fractured. Why is he covering all these subjects? Here's some of the questions he asked. How am I doing at loving brothers and sisters in Christ? Am I willing to entertain strangers? How do I do at, at viewing God's standard for marriage and for sexual purity? What's my relationship to money? Can I recognize false teaching? Believe it or not, all that's in there in those nine verses that we're going to look at. And some of you recently have gone to college. Some of you are in college. You may have experienced what I'm about to talk about. But you remember that moment when your parents are either dropping you off at a dorm or standing in the driveway and it's your freshman year and they feel like they've got to cram everything into the last five minutes they're going to see you? And just tell you everything, don't forget this, don't forget this, change your underwear, do your laundry, don't spend too much, okay, it's like that. We, we come to this passage, you're going to think, man, he's like a dad talking to me in the driveway. Well, understand where this is coming from. It's the final chapter. It's the, it's the ending of his great dissertation. And he wants to make sure they don't miss the most important points, like how to apply this to our own life. So let's go right into verse 1 of chapter 13. You'll see this on the screen. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's some in the racks in front of you. But we have Bibles on the table in the back. Uh, they're free for you to take with you when you leave today if you don't own a Bible. We really want you to have a copy of God's Word. But follow along on the screen if you want to do it that way. And it says this in verse 1. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. Now, in the Greek language, the the brotherly love that he's speaking of here is actually just one word. It's a compound word. And I want you to see this particular word on the screen. I think I put it in your notes this morning. It's a combination of phileo, which means I have an affection towards you. It's not sexual love. It's talking about relationship love. So phileo love is this very tender affection that we would feel towards each other. And it's put with the word adelphos. And it's very familiar to us because we have a major city here in the United States with the same name, Philadelphia. Philadelphos is the way that the word is used in the Greek language. So adelphos, this last part, literally means from the same womb, meaning this is the kind of love I would have towards my brother or towards my sister, sibling-type love. But he's saying we've got to have this towards each other in the church. Let brotherly love continue. Do you notice that what he's saying is this is a really natural love? This is something that just comes out of who you are in Christ. Meaning, you don't have to create it. You don't have to make it happen. He's not saying, you've got to create this. He's saying, keep it going. 
You got it going on. Keep it going on. Don't let it fade away. Matter of fact, we see very particularly these people kind of had this down. Think back with me to Hebrews chapter 6. Look what it says up on the screen. It says, For God is not so unjust as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name. Meaning they've got this going on. That's why he says, keep it going on. Why? I told you this morning, this is kind of a grading scale. You get to look at yourself and say, how am I doing on this issue? Because the contrast to Philadelphia love is this, 1 John 3.17. It says, but whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Meaning, if you're not showing Philadelphia love, there's a real question whether or not you're walking with Jesus. So the Bible says there's a byproduct of knowing God's truth. And that byproduct is we're naturally going to be drawn into fellowship with each other. We're going to want to hang out with each other. We're going to want to do life together. We're going to want to help each other in the times of trauma. Now, a truth that I've come to understand is that brotherly love, this Philadelphia-type love, it can really stay in, in embryo status. Meaning it's there, but it's never been fostered. It's never actually grown and matured. Well, how does Philadelphia love actually grow? How does it mature in my life? Well, here's how I know it grows. It grows out of spiritual knowledge. The more I know about God's word and God's standard, the more I understand that his, his love develops through me. We get a really true picture of what this looks like from Jesus. John 13, Jesus said, you want a defining rod to know whether or not you're walking with me? Here it is. Look at this passage. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now that's a really, really hard reality because what we're being told is that Jesus gave non-believers of the world the right to judge believers, to determine whether or not this thing that you say that you belong to this Christ life is real. And so he's given them a measuring rod. And the measuring rod by which they can determine if we're serious about this is how we're doing this life together with each other. See, your life preaches. Did you know that? I don't know how many times you've preached a sermon this week, but I bet a lot because the world is watching. And your life preaches a powerful sermon, way more than what I do here on the weekends. You are a living witness to the world saying, is is this real in this person's life? And so he goes on in verse 2 to say, you're a witness to the world, so do not neglect strangers. Now, that's an interesting phrase that he would throw in there. Matter of fact, even this part about entertaining angels really raises your attention span. So strangers here, I believe, completely refers to believers and non-believers both. So we're going to put all of society in there. But we understand as believers, our first responsibility is to believers. Matter of fact, look with me at, at Galatians 6. It says this, while we have the opportunity, let us do good to all men and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Now, there's a danger. We all know what the danger is. There's a risk that we're going to be taken advantage of, right? Our mind immediately goes there to think, eh, man, if I help so-and-so, they're just going to use me. They're going to use my resources. Well, that's not an excuse for not helping, Now, many people think, well, I don't want to be an enabler. I don't want to just enable someone. Well, we have to use common sense, right? So specifically, when he's talking about a stranger here, by definition, we'd have to say that's someone we don't know. So when we come up to someone whom we don't know, a stranger, it's really easy to be deceived. So we use common sense. When someone's asking for money, 
and we're driving down the highway, and we pull up to an off-ramp, and there's an individual next to a stop sign with cardboard and ink, and it says, please help, am homeless, need to feed my children. Immediately, where do our minds go? Yeah, how do you afford that cell phone you're holding? Where'd you get the money to buy those cigarettes? Where's those children you say you've got? See, we wouldn't say that out loud, but we're thinking it, right? Or am I the only one? Okay, okay, just, just do what I mean, just being honest with each other. Uh, we immediately go into assessment mode, trying to determine, is that person worth my investment, or are they going to take advantage of me? And, and so we have to use common sense in that situation. We may not give them money. If they're asking for food, maybe you drive to the local drive through and buy them a bag of food. See how they respond to that. The point is, it opens up a door. It opens an, op- uh, an opportunity for conversation. See, our concern has to be to help, not to avoid, because if you and I do it with proper intentions, God's going to honor the effort. That's what this is really about. So in the ancient world, here's the detail on hospitality. In the ancient world, when it says entertain strangers, it's talking about putting somebody up in your house, meaning in, invite someone in to stay with you because hospitality meant something different to them than what it does to us. Inns, places that people stayed, were incredibly expensive and very, very rare. And they had a bad reputation. As a matter of fact, when you read about Rahab the harlot in the Old Testament, she, prostitute, she kept a house of ill repute, it was an inn. They had a reputation for being a place where you didn't necessarily want to go. And most of the Romans knew that the inns that were out in the country, they were infested with fleas. So they just kind of wanted to avoid places like that. So that raised the issue of a hospitality to a really high level. Hospitality in the Middle East, even to this day, is a great virtue. So it's natural that we would find this in Scripture saying, this is a standard for the church. Matter of fact, it's a qualification to be an elder. Look with me on the screen. 1 Timothy 3 says this, An overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable. Elders are supposed to open up their homes, so all the elders are having you over for lunch today after church. (laughs) They didn't know that. I just told them. Now, now, now what we're really talking about is somebody who's, who's ready to serve who's ready to meet the needs. This is a trademark of Christ followers. So let's put it in context. Think about what you've learned over the last 11 chapters. People who have left Judaism, they've left a former way of life, they've come to Christ, and they've been rejected by society. Not only does Rome want to kill them, the synagogues have pushed them out. Their families have disowned them, and in many cases, they're without homes. And so he's encouraging them, bring those individuals into your home. They can't afford to stay at the Holiday Inn. Entertain them. So goes into verse 2 by saying, some of them even entertained angels without knowing. Now, I know he's thinking back to the Abraham story. If, if you get a chance later today, read Genesis 18 and Genesis 19, where angels came and were part of Abraham's household, and he didn't even know it until later. Matter of fact, one of them, it appears, was Jesus Christ and two angels with him, Jesus pre-incarnate. Now, we're not getting into angelology this morning, but how fascinating is that? That God uses his messengers, his holy messengers, to come to planet Earth, and we're not even sure when we encounter them. But that's not the motivation for hospitality. We serve for the sake of those we're helping with the ultimate goal of God's glory is what's in mind here. 
See, and it's fascinating to me in Abraham's story because he didn't know. He didn't know that they were angels, yet he jumped in and he volunteered himself with opportunity type thinking. This is what I think is going on in his mind. When you read Genesis 18 and 19, it's got to be, God, what are you putting in my path? What are the circumstances here? And that's the question we have to ask ourselves in a setting like this. God, what are you up to? What are you putting in my path by allowing this individual who has great need to come into my life? Because the truth is, sometimes God puts things right in your path just to see how you'll respond to it in order to grow you. The author is really getting to the roots of the basic characteristics of a Christ follower. And now he's going to take it up a notch in verse 3. Look at this one. Verse 3 says, Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Uh, A truth is that strangers come to us unknowingly. We didn't anticipate it, and all of a sudden, there they are, boom, in our world. But a prisoner, that's somebody you have to seek out. So let's substitute the concept of a prisoner for someone going through great trauma. I'm, I'm convinced as I read this passage that He's writing about Christians who have been put in prison for the faith. He's not talking about lifetime habitual criminals. Now, this passage could apply to that too, but in context, he's talking about people who have suffered for the sake of the kingdom of God. So in our mind, we know in in this world, 2014 in the United States, we're not watching people in the United States being thrown into prison for their faith. We're seeing in other parts of the world people who are dying for their faith So we might put in there people who are going through great trauma. And he says, treat those individuals in verse 3 as though you're right there with them, as though you're in their shoes. Early Christians took this so seriously that they actually sold themselves into slavery in order to buy a brother or sister in Christ out of prison. People could be bought out of prison in the Roman world. And so it comes out of the Bible, but also this is an apostolic confession you're about to see on the screen. It's a very, very ancient writing, and it says this, how Christians are to behave. If any Christian is condemned for Christ's sake to the minds by the ungodly, do not overlook him, but from the proceeds of your toil and sweat, send him something to support himself, because they were living with next to nothing for the sake of Jesus. And if they were in jail, they'd pay the redemption price. There's historians that lived in the first century, non-Christian, extra-biblical sources who wrote about these things. One of them you'll see up on the screen, Aristides, he wrote this, if they hear that any one of their number is in prison or in distress for the sake of their Christ's name, they all render aid in his necessity, and if they can, they redeem him to set him free. Now, the early Christians became a living rebuke to the society that they lived in. You know, when you look back on ancient Rome and ancient Greece, they were pagan to the core, and their behavior was the stuff of legend. Their their behavior is not something that you want to model in your life. So the Christians who lived to this really high standard began to be a, a moral condemnation to the society they lived in, to the degree that the Caesars who were in power actually employed his governors to watch the Christians, to put a lens on them to see whether or not they were really living up to these high claims that they said they lived up to. So one of those governors was Pliny, Pliny the Younger, and he was a governor of a territory under Caesar, and he was commissioned by Caesar to do that very thing. Here's his report back to Caesar. He says this, They bind themselves by an oath 
not to any criminal end, but to avoid theft or robbery or adultery, never to break their word or repudiate a deposit when called upon to refund it. This was stuff that was contrary to what was going on in their world in the first century. Here's the reason he's brought this up in verse 3. His point is, for people who are going through really, really hard times, we have to do our best to put ourselves in their shoes and show them this Philadelphia's love, this brother-sister type relationship. It's the principle that Jesus fleshed out. We think of as the golden rule. Here's the way he actually said it, and it comes from Matthew seven twelve. Therefore, however you want people to treat you, so treat them. You've heard this, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. This is the way that Jesus said it. You, you want people to treat you right? You've got to treat them right. So how do we do that? Well, I put it in your notes this morning. When you've got somebody in your life who's in trauma, you can support them in three ways, and this is not rocket science. We just need to be reminded of it. Here's the first one. Be there. Just be available when other people are in trouble. You, you have no idea what your encouragement can mean to someone who's in the hospital or who needs to be rescued from the side of the road or who's in prison, perhaps. And, and the second one is giving direct help. It may be your money. Might be your food. It, it might be to borrow your car. And, and the third one is pray. Pray. And we very quickly forget that. I, I want you to see a haunting comment from Paul. Remember, Paul was in prison twice. First time in chains because of the gospel, second time in chains because of the gospel, but Caesar intended to behead him, which he did ultimately do. So he writes this. In Colossians 4.18, remember my chains. Remember my imprisonment. And he was writing this to the church at Colossae, who were a long ways away from him. So they can't go be there. And he's about to be beheaded, so the money's not going to matter at this point. And clothing isn't going to matter, and food isn't going to matter. What's he asking for? When you read Colossians 4, he's saying, you pray for me? I need strength in this moment. I need to be encouraged. See, in a moment, you can intercede for somebody on the other side of the planet through prayer. So we, we know these are not rocket science, but we forget these things. Be there. Give direct help. Pray for someone. Let's move on because those first parts were reminders of how we treat other people. Here's how we treat ourselves. The last half here, verse 4. Let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Now, you know, I've already said the behavior in the pagan world of the first century is the stuff of legend. It was just rampant with depravity. Well, here's one of the problems. In the church the external sources began pressing on it by this. People were saved to the saving knowledge of who Jesus is. They left behind their pagan lifestyle, came into the church, and they were so repulsed by their previous behavior that they began giving false teaching within the church, telling people that they should be celibate, that God sees people who are never married as remaining pure as being holier than those who got married. And so these individuals began pushing the issue of celibacy upon the early church, forgetting God's word that God established marriage 
And so the writer is saying, let marriage be held in honor. God instituted it. Jesus cherished it. Not only going to weddings, he performed his first miracle at a wedding. So he takes it one step further and says, let the marriage bed be undefiled, which was radical thinking in the first century. For the pagans to hear that, to think that they they couldn't sleep around, was new news to them. So he uses a really, really strong word here, and strong in a good way. This word undefiled applies to Jesus, and I want you to see how. It's the word aminatos, and it means unsoiled. Now, you've seen this word used of Jesus a few weeks back in the book of Hebrews, and it's talking about Jesus' sexual purity. Look with me on the screen. It comes from Hebrews chapter 7. For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, aminatos. It's not an uncommon thing for people to give false teaching in the world today that say that Jesus was married. Jesus was a normal man. He was married to Mary Magdalene. That is a lie. It is false teaching. God's word says he was pure, undefiled. And so the the writer goes on in verse 4 to say, God's going to judge those who are sexually immoral and those who are adulterous, meaning continuing on, that that, that's part of their lifestyle. So he uses this word immorality in a very familiar way. It's the word porneia. And in the Greek language, it's very specific to us because we're familiar with the word pornography here in our modern Western world, where porneia is associated also with the word fornicator, meaning those who involve themselves in sexual activity outside of marriage. People forget today that God is really serious about our sexual purity. So his command is this, 1 Corinthians 6, flee immorality, meaning porneia, flee porneia, Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. That's very telling. So we've got a sin here that's not only against God, it's against ourselves. So God's standard is really firmly established. And the truth of this passage is it's not possible when you move against God's design to not incur some consequences. You're going to suffer some way. Now, many people struggle in the world today trying to understand what is going on, not just in the United States, but around the world. It seems like society is collapsing. I believe you can trace much of it to rampant sexual behavior moving outside of God's standards. Now, the truth is you would expect the pagans to behave that way because they don't know God. They don't know his standards. And so when the people in the first century heard this, they thought, what's up with that? You're telling us we can't have free love whenever we want? Well, they're pagans. They're without Jesus. So they don't understand it. But his writing is to Christians. And when Christians are immoral, there's immediate consequences which are far, far worse. Why? Because the witness is destroyed. The church is damaged The person no more has the the moral grounds to speak with because of the moral failure. So he's saying part of our moral responsibility is to ourselves to be pure. So the early church had to face this because there were so many people coming out of paganism, dragging their baggage with them into the church. They had to come up with guidelines. I put it in your notes this morning, just very, very basic guidelines. Number one, they had to repent. Number two, other believers were supposed to help them. You can see it in Galatians 6. And number three, the believers were not to be best friends with those who were really immoral. Yes, love them as brothers and sisters in Christ, 
but doing life with them to the degree that they start dragging you down is not the right way to go. Now, to be sure, believers caught up in sin like this are forgiven. Absolutely. God forgives all sin. But there's consequences, and many people live with those kind of consequences for years because of their decisions. But rather than getting into that right now, let's go to verse 5. He says, Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. This writer knows what you and I know. Man's struggle with sex and money is as old as time. And it was true in the first century. It was true in the time of Abraham. It's true in 2014. Hollywood knows it. Hollywood knows it sells because it's so familiar to us. So the author is going to go right to the heart of the matter. And he asks this question in verses 5 and 6. Are you content with what you have this morning? Are you content with what God has given you? That's what it really boils down to. Are you satisfied? Because the opposite is a person who's discontent with what they have, they pursue a selfish agenda at the expense of everybody else around them. And they chase after what they want when they want it. So he asked the question, are you content? And he, he asked it in an interesting way. When he says, keep yourself free from the love of money, he uses this word about your life. He says, keep your life free in the NASB or, or keep your character free. And the word character and life is the word topos in the Greek language. And it meant your style, your mode by which you live. Uh, here's, here's a familiar way for me to think of this because I had a guy that I worked with in college. When I, I worked my way through flight school, and when I was in flight school, in the summers, I'd go and work in a factory to earn extra money. And so in, in the summertime breaks, I, w- I was in this foundry setting where this guy showed up every day, a co-worker, wearing a suit. Now, mind you, he was one of the line workers with me. But he's wearing a jacket, dress pants, nice white shirt, and a hat, And I want to paint a picture for you so you understand this concept of of mode or lifestyle. His name's Josiah, and in this setting, this is what he did. I would say to him, Josiah, how can you wear a suit every single day? It's a hot factory. You're getting stuff on you. And he had a bright purple jacket with matching purple pants and a wide-brim purple hat. And he'd walk towards me. Mind you, this is the 1970s, so he had a certain style. He'd walk like this. And I'd say, how do you do that with a suit every day? And he says, Mark, it's my style. It defines who I am. Well, this is what the writer is talking about. He says, how does your style define you? Well, free from the love of money, hopefully. Now, some of you are thinking, well, God's really helping me with that one because money's not an issue. I don't have any. Well, the truth is he's not talking about keeping yourself free from money. He's talking about free from the love of money. What has become your God? See, you don't have to acquire a whole lot of things to be greedy or what Bible, the Bible calls being covetous. It's, it's an attitude. It's wanting to acquire things to the degree that it actually replaces God. And I just read a story this week about a pastor who had a man come in his office whom he knew very well who said to the pastor, I am um, guilty of living in sin and I need to talk to you. 
The pastor invited him into his office and, and said, what's going on? He said, I am uh, consumed with gluttony. Now the pastor looked at him and said, you're, you're fit, you're trim. There's no evidence of this in your life. What's going on? He said, I know, but that's all I think about. I can't not think about food. It's an obsession with me. It's all I want. It's got all of my attention. See, greed follows a pattern. There's this increasing desire, but there's a decreasing pleasure at the same time. Solomon wrote to this wealthiest man on planet earth that we know of, and he said this in Ecclesiastes, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves abundance with its income. This too is vanity. See, your your having never catches up with your wanting. The more you get, the more you want because your focus is wrong. So when we're looking for security and material things, what are we saying to God? I got something that replaces you. I've got confidence in that more than I've got confidence in you. So we're told by Jesus himself, this is a creepy thing. He said, this is a slow creep. It never pounces on you. It's something that seeps into your life. Matter of fact, this is the way that he said it. It it comes from Luke 12. Beware and be on your guard against every form of greed For not even when one has abundance does his life consist of his possessions, meaning your possessions don't define you. So contentment cannot come from material things. It only comes from God. He's the only one that can do that. That's why God says, greed is not a trivial thing with me because it replaces me. Now, I want you to hear me very clearly. It is not wrong to have wealth. I've known people who are extremely poor who are consumed with acquiring more. And I know people who are extremely wealthy who are very open-handed with what they have. What we're really talking about is the attitude, the mindset. Have we become satisfied with what we have? Now, this is the crux of the teaching. It comes right into the ending here. So I, I want you to get this part down. What we're talking about here is not the lack or the abundance of things in our life. It's how we're managing what we have. So I put this together in your notes, and you'll see it up on the screen, these four ways to identify if you've got contentment in your life. Is this part of who you are? Because contentment stems from relationship, meaning knowing who you are in Christ. And so the very first one, the first point is just acknowledge God's goodness in your life. Do you do that? Do you acknowledge what God has given you? Start there. Number two, recognize that God is omniscient. And he knows what you need. Jesus said that himself very specifically in Luke 12. Your father knows what you need even before you ask for it. Here's the third one. Recognize God's sovereign. And he's giving you things in your life that he's not giving to me. And he's giving things in my life that he's not giving to you. Why? Because he knows us personally. And he knows what we need and what we don't need. The real question is, how are we managing what we've been given? Are we good stewards? Here's the last one. Reminding ourselves what true wealth is. I saw people in Africa living in eight-by-eight tin huts who embarrassed me with how happy they are in Jesus because it surpassed my own joy. And they had nothing. They're living on dirt floors, and yet they beamed with the joy of Christ. So reminding ourselves what we have in Jesus 
That makes even the poorest person on planet Earth incredibly rich. So that's why Scripture says, set your mind on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. So that's why I say contentment really comes from communion with God, knowing what you have in Him. And the more that we focus on Jesus, the less we concentrate on the material things. And the material things fade in priority, doesn't it? It just disappears the more that you focus on Christ. So that's why he ends by reminding us of these great quotes saying, Jesus said, I'm never going to leave you. I'm never going to forsake you. And what can man do to me if God's on my side? Here's the last part, verse 7. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. And he does something very unique here. The full name of Jesus is used. The reason that should get your attention is this is only the third time in the entire book of Hebrews. Yeshua Mashiach. Yeshua, the Messiah. Why is that so significant? This statement gets weight and gets gravity because in Malachi 3 6, God says, I never change. There's no shadow of turning in me. What I was yesterday, I am today, and I will be tomorrow. So this writer in Hebrews says the same thing about Jesus, Yeshua, Mashiach, is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Why? Because God is constant. Therefore, Jesus is constant. Earthly leaders come and go, but he's always there. He will never leave you. He'll never forsake you. What can man do to you if God is on your side? See, you need not think that Jesus is somehow different today than what he was 2,000 years ago or that he's different 2,000 years ago than what he will be in the future. He's never different. Past or present makes no difference to an eternal God. Time is irrelevant. So he closes it by using this word forever, aeonos, Meaning as far as you can project into the future, as far as you can see on the distant horizon, Jesus will be the same at that point. He's completely unchanged. And the reason I bring that out is one of the great unfortunate characteristics of our generation, of this world that we live in, is believing that God has somehow changed. That God has adapted to culture. It is the most egotistical statement you will ever hear of a lie that is perpetrated on planet Earth. That God has somehow changeable. That man's culture has changed, and so therefore God has adapted his standards to meet man's needs. You talk about putting the created over the top of the creator. That is a lie from the pit of hell. That his nature and his word have somehow adapted to mankind's cultural whims. That is not a great God. So we're told according to Scripture in 2 Timothy 4, there's a time coming in verse 3. It says, there is a time coming when people will no longer listen to sound doctrine. It says this, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. That sets us up for the last thought in verse 9, when he says, Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. I don't know which one of the questions this morning in the list resonated with you or if you wrote down some of your own questions, but I'm here to tell you every bad practice in your life, every bad standard of conduct in in my life, I'll loop us all into the same group here, 
can trace itself to one original core. And that original core is poor belief. Meaning this, what you believe about God determines what you do next. What you believe about God in your life determines your actions. And and so every bad practice, every bad standard of conduct can be traced right to bad belief. And so let's take that up a notch. A church that is not sound in doctrine is an unstable church. And that's what this writer is saying to these people. Don't be led away by diverse and strange teachings because some people were creeping into the church telling them false truth. The biblical purpose of new hope of this church is to establish God's people so that they will not be drifted and blown away and moved around by culture. So Ephesians 4 says very specifically what my job description is. It says, Mark, your responsibility is to equip the saints of God. Because the truth is, in our world today, false teachers still creep in. And they're really kind. And they're very likable. And they smile nice on stage. And they convince us, because their personality is likable, that whatever they say must be true. But according to God's standard of word, we assess doctrine and truth by God's word, not by culture and not by personalities. Truth is not assessed based on the emotion of the public, but rather upon God's unchangeable word. That's why Paul said in one of his great dissertations, hey, even if an angel shows up and tells you something different than what we have taught you in the gospel, let that one be accursed because God never changes. So I I don't often close with a quote, but I, I want you to see from Alexander McLaren. He's an old dead theologian, and he lived in the 1800s, but his insight was profound because he really got it. You and I are truly the Bible most people will never read. They won't read the written word, but they read you every single day. And this is what Alexander McLaren said. The the world takes its notion of God, most of all, from those who say they belong to God's family. They read us a great deal more than they read the Bible. See, you are the only Bible most people will ever read, and your life is preaching a sermon every day. What's that sermon saying? Well, we've seen God's standards, and we've got the questions to evaluate ourselves by, and I'm going to pray for you and myself right now that God will take these truths and just seal them within us. Would you join me in that? Father, I pray for our church. Everyone gathered in this auditorium right now, I I pray for your blessing, first of all, upon them, for having gathered and spent time willingly to know more about who you are. But I also pray for some tender emotions right now, Father, I believe that there's some individuals whose buttons have been pushed this morning. And you have moved in some individuals' hearts in ways that they didn't anticipate before they came in here today. So I would ask in your own gentle way, in the way that you teach us through the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would come alongside those individuals and put your arm around them and gently correct us where we need correcting Father, for all of us, I would ask that you raise us up. Allow us to see your standard. Keep us from settling, but rather to set our eyes on the author and finisher of our faith.
who for joy endured the cross because of what was on the other side. God, I I pray for your people. I pray for everyone who is here over the course of these three services this weekend and all those who will listen online, that you would use your truth and seal it deep in our heart. It's in Jesus' name we ask for this. Amen.